tonight. We thank you for your presence here. Thank you for an open heaven, the glory in this place. Holy Spirit, we thank you for coming to anoint and empower this time and glorify Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, that where two or three are gathered, you're in our midst. And Lord, I thank you for speaking through me tonight under anointing everything that needs to be said into good soil. Even now, the Holy Spirit, I thank you. He's moving upon every person that's going to be hearing and watching, helping us to be good soil, locked in and focused to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus, that the seeds of truth are sown out into that good soil, the living word, the truth, and watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Lord, I thank you for the winds of the Holy Spirit carrying this out everywhere it needs to go among the nations and that everything's going to be accomplished in and through this that you will to be done. We submit it unto you, and the Bible says the birds of the air try to steal the seed, but we bind the enemy right now in Jesus' name. You will back off. We break your power. And Lord, I thank you for your angels just clearing out any hindrance, and we stand on the promise. Your word will not return void, but will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So Lord, we agree. We thank you for it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're dealing with part four. We broke up part three into a couple different sections, looking at the awakening, uh, the first great awakening. Now we're going to deal with the second great awakening, and this is in the very late 1700s into the um, early 1800s. This was an incredible revival. This move of God I really love this move of God. I love studying this, and I've gone down to Cane Ridge, and I've done some research myself, and uh, this is something that's really a powerful move of God in our history as a nation. You know, America has been a land of revival. See, in the early 1600s, the pilgrims came here trying to find religious freedom. We know the story. They established the Mayfire Compact and all, uh, Compact and all that, but... What a lot of people don't know because it's not taught in public schools is that they, they set up a cross in Virginia Beach and they dedicated this land to Jesus Christ and to the furthering of the gospel and they considered themselves to be missionaries in this land. And as the nation began to grow and populous, you know, the schools taught the Bible. But anyway, as our nation needed to have some, some revival, some breakthroughs in the 1700s, early to mid-1700s, God began to mightily move through the lives of people we've already talked about the last couple of weeks, like um, here, Jonathan Edwards in Massachusetts, a powerful explosion of revival that the Holy Spirit just broke out, began to move and um, up in the northeast and down our, our coast. And, and then, of course, with um, John and Charles Wesley that traveled England and here in Whitfield. Uh, it was just an incredible time. But what happened is, is that as revival began to wane some, and also because of the Revolutionary War. I mean, it was that war can really take a toll. And so the combination of revival beginning to wane, the war that came, our nation had gotten into a place where we weren't doing good spiritually. And that was where now we're going to start looking at how God sent another wave. I believe it was the same revival, if you will, the same anointing, the same move of God, but it was like a rekindling of that again, full flame. But I'm going to start with this. In 1 John chapter 3, I'm going to begin with this scripture, and then I'm going to end this sermon by dealing with some things that I think will be a blessing to you guys. But unfortunately, I think a lot of mainstream Christianity may not really fully understand. 
So just bear with me, but we're going to look at the frontier revivals. But let's start with 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now, in the Greek, the word translated here, practice, it means that you're doing stuff. I mean, it's you're doing or not doing, but it's action, okay? It says, the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. That means is living a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. It's not really a, a possibility for a true believer to be able to live that way. The Holy Spirit will convict them. They will have a heart to change. And that's what John's saying here. If somebody can live a life of unrepentant sin and have no remorse, they just keep justifying it, and they're comfortable in that condition, they're not saved. It's not, it, so anyway, it says here, no one who is born of God practices sin as a lifestyle because his seed abides in him. So the seed is the Holy Spirit in our spirit, okay? And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So you can tell when somebody's truly born again, and it's so obvious because their lifestyle begins to radically change. We've all seen it. We've all experienced it. So I'm going to look at that. I'm going to come back to that scripture later on. So let, let me pick up where I was talking about historically. As revival began to wane, we moved into the time of our Revolutionary War, and the nation began to decline spiritually. It was a very difficult time in our nation. We, we began to see from France and from Great Britain a lot of very secular, rationalistic, type of teaching began to come in. It began to come into our universities. A lot of people was, were affected by that, and we saw a great decline in the move of God. Now, it all has to begin somewhere, and many times in revival, as I've studied revivals, it, ha it began with an extremely small group, but it would eventually grow into something very significant. It's no different here in this revival. There was a man by the name of James McGreedy. He was a man that was pastoring a church in the Carolinas. This was in the early days, the original 13 colonies. He's in the Carolinas. He's pastoring. But he was a man, Presbyterian by denomination, but he was somebody that was a man of prayer and fasting and a fiery preacher. See, whenever you pray, and you're praying over your congregation, you're praying over the church services, and you're spending time in the presence of God, and you're praying over the sermon itself, you're getting the word of the Lord, and you come in and you preach it, and there's an anointing on it. How many knows it's not just something that's heard, it's something that's felt? There is a big difference. And James McGreedy was that type of a preacher that he was really a prayer warrior. And he, he was somebody that was a fiery preacher. And I'm going to give you a description of... Barton Stone described how what he experienced when he preached. Now, I'm going to read that later. 
He was a fiery preacher. So he was kind of one of those preachers that told it like it was. If, if you, you either loved him or you hated him. Those type of preachers are revival preachers. Either you're going to love them or hate them. And he was one of those. So what happened was, if you're going to do what he's doing, and you're going to really pray, and you're going to fast, and you're going to come under an anointing, and you're going to preach it straight. You're calling sinners to repentance without any intention of like pointing your finger in the heavens and binding anything or, or directly trying to out loud confront demon powers. Just by virtue of the fact that you are a person of prayer and fasting, and there is an anointing, and you're preaching the truth in power, that alone right there is like a confrontation with the forces of hell in that region. And so he was really coming up against spiritual forces, and it, I'm just reading some things that I wrote here. If you're going to affect the spirit realm where angels and demons clash, don't be surprised at serious spiritual warfare that comes. By being a people of prayer fasting and going after souls, you are in direct conflict with the forces of hell in that region. And that was something as I spent some time with Steve Hill, I asked him a lot of questions, and we talked for a while. And we prayed together in 2003. And I'll never forget he told me this, because he, he felt that God had called me to see revival and see a, a harvest of souls. We talked about that. He felt that, and he was telling me, he said, now listen, he said, if you're going to, to go out there and you're going to see people saved, and these were his words, and you're going to start taking the devil's little soldiers from him, he said, he's not going to just sit back and let you get away with it. He's going to come after you with warfare. So you need to be ready for the warfare that goes along with that type of thing. And anyway, as I was just pinning this, and I was looking over James McGreedy, and I was thinking back to all, like my time with Steve Hill and all these different things, I was realizing how, how powerful his ministry, James McGreedy's ministry, was really coming up in the Carolinas, uh, stirring up forces of hell. Well, there were people there that loved him, but there were people there that really hated him. And so they came to his church uh, to vandalize it in the night, and I'm not sure if their intention was to burn down the whole church, but they did vandalize it. They, they tore up some things. They ripped out uh, some pews, and they ended up burning down his pulpit area in the, in the front, and it was just ash. And James McGreedy was the type, though, that didn't let things stop him. And so he comes in, and he's standing on the ash. I mean, this is just bold. He stands on the pile of ashes, opens his Bible to the passage that says, O oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather as a hen would gather chicks under wings, but you wouldn't have it. That was his sermon. And he basically felt a release to leave the Carolinas. Now, there was a famous individual by the name of Daniel Boone, many of you have heard of him, who would go out as a frontiersman, and he, he had gone beyond our civilized part of the world at that time, and he was out in the landscape that would later be known as Kentucky, and out there he saw that it was actually very good land, and he felt that it would make good farmland and good ranch land, 
And so he came back and was telling people, you really need a homestead out there. And so basically there was a group of like Scottish-Irish Presbyterian people that came together and they, they were going to go out and begin to homestead that area. And James McGreedy went with them. Now, in those days, it's hard for people to really imagine how different things were. For people to homestead as a family and then go to church, church would be several miles away. It was not easy to do, given that we think in terms of modern conveniences. I mean, they had to make sure that things were actually cooked and that they could bring with them. They, they would have to make sure the horses are fed and water. They'd have to hitch up. Uh, the wagon, it was a, a long trek. There are things that would take us, you know, 30 minutes would take them several hours. And it was just a big ordeal. So people didn't necessarily make it to church every Sunday, you understand. And James McGreedy, when he was out there with all these homesteaders, it was, it was somewhat dangerous. I mean, there, there was the Indians out there, there was Cherokee area. And so there were, there were some violent attacks. And they were out there kind of in the wild that you had to deal with some of the, the wild animals and all that, and it could be dangerous. And so James McGreedy, though, began to pastor a church in Gasper River, but he also pastored a church in Muddy River and then in Red River. So he had three different churches that he was overseeing. And homesteaders would come in when they could. His churches were not big. The area wasn't even well populated yet. But here's the thing, just like the beginning of our nation, we had these, uh, those that came in on the Mayflower, and they considered themselves to be somewhat missionaries. This was like the exact opposite. Many of the people, not all, there were some wonderful Christian homesteaders, but many people that were going out to places like this were, were a rough crowd. They were people that had something to get away from. They were wanted by the law. They had problems behind them. They wanted to go to a new area. Does this make sense? And so they began, God ended up putting James McGreedy right in the middle of probably the worst place at that time in Kentucky. In fact, in that area, um, it was nicknamed Rogue's Harbor because of the people there. They called them a bunch of rogue people that were fleeing a sinful past. Now, that area had also become full of vice. It was full of alcoholism and gambling, and it was an, an ungodly area because of the people that came there, okay? And so isn't it just like the Lord to put somebody like James McGreedy right in the middle of that? So what does he do? He begins to pray. Now, let me, let me just read a little bit here. In 1796, okay, so keep this in mind. Because it's 1801 is when the Cambridge Revival took place. So this was about five years earlier, 1796. James McGreedy took charge of Gasper River, Muddy River, Red River. And, um, but he covenanted, he coveted and covenanted, excuse me, with the congregation there that he would pray every Saturday. And he was also going to fast every third Saturday of the month from sunset or sunup until sundown, and his focused prayers, he asked the congregations to pray with him, but his focus of prayer was on those Saturday night prayer meetings was to pray for revival in America. He saw even in the Carolinas how the nation had 
the great awakening had waned. People were away from God. He saw in his area, Rogue's Harbor, how sinful it was. And he began to really cry out to God on Saturdays and those that would join him to pray for revival. And every third Saturday, he would fast. And he was believing God to break forth with a mighty move of the Spirit. It was his personal persistence in prayer and the few others that joined him that saw a breakthrough. Do you remember the story of, in the Bible where Elijah, he began to really pray. He had the word of the Lord that rain was coming, but he began to really pray, and he kept sending his servant to go look, and nothing was there. But he, he was persistent. So that's the thing. In the Amplified, it, you know, we know the King James is the effectual fervent prayer, but the Amplified seems to indicate the heartfelt, persistent um, heart cry of the righteous makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its, in its working, but it's the heartfelt, continued, persistent prayers that bring the breakthrough. And Elijah kept persisting, kept persisting, and finally the seventh time he said, well, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And Elijah knew he had the breakthrough and that it would grow into a, a mighty rain that was needed. Now, in the same way, this revival break, broke forth in a small way. James McGreedy, pastoring these very small congregations in 1797, it says that he saw the first visit of the Holy Spirit as he preached. A woman who had been a faithful church member was struck with a deep conviction she sought salvation anew, and in a few days, she was filled with joy and peace in believing. And McGreedy wrote this, that she immediately began to visit her friends and her relatives from house to house, warning them of the danger that they, in the most faithful manner, and pleaded with them to repent and seek religion, which meant seek the Lord. This resulted as she was witnessing from house to house, this resulted in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit to the awakening of many. About this time, James also records that it seems like the ears of his congregations just seemed to pop open. That he said this. He said, the ears of all in the congregation seemed to be open to receive the word preached in almost every sermon seemed to be accompanied with the power of God to the awakening of sinners. During the summer, about 10 persons in the congregation were brought to Christ. Something shifted. How many knows when God moves in somebody's life and then they begin to talk about it, you don't just hear what they're saying, you feel it. That's, that's what I want you to, to take home from this sermon because that's going to be a continuing theme throughout this whole time here is that it's not... See, you can sit through... How many remember sitting through math class? You hear the teacher, but it's different whenever somebody's talking to you about the fires of revival and you feel it burning in you. It's, there's a difference. We were, we're not just talking about information here. We're talking about that people were witnessing under an anointing and you could feel it and it brought people to repentance. So James saw his breakthrough. And then in 1798, a year, a year later, it says that this continued in his church, but he decided this. He had heard about Whitfield gave this pattern, and it helped to spark a revival in Ulster, 
in the Northern Ireland area. Area, Ulster was a powerful move of God. I probably will talk about it at some point. But anyway, he heard about this pattern. And so he said to himself, look, we're seeing a move of God in our congregations now. People are repenting and getting saved. We need to see this out in the community. So he began in 1798, why don't we join various churches coming together and we'll have like a weekend where we'll focus in prayer and we'll do some fasting and we'll come together believing for a special move of God and we'll close it out by taking communion together. And so the people said, that's a good idea. So this started at Gasper River. James called the local churches together for a time, and McGreedy talked about these gatherings at Gasper River and then also Muddy River, and he said this, when they gathered together, the Holy Spirit pouring forth in these gatherings, he said that even bold, daring sinners that were present would cover their faces and weep bitterly under the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, as God moved upon the sinners, they were powerfully alarmed and precious souls were brought uh, to feeling the pardoning love of Jesus. And this same pattern continued into 1799. So he began to have these meetings at Gasper River, Muddy River, and Red River where he would gather. And he said that the Holy Spirit began to move now so powerfully that even people that were just heathen that were there would just be under such a conviction they would weep. And many were starting to get saved. Now, how many knows as, as I'm reading this, you can see that the cloud the size of a man's hand is starting to grow, okay? So look, the Bible says don't despise the days of small beginnings. Remember, this started with one guy praying with maybe a handful of others on a Saturday night. This is how it started. Remember that when you read about the historic revivals that shook the entire nation that they took place in, it affected, most of the time, it began with a tiny group of people. And this is obviously no different. In June of 1800, this is when everything really shifted in the high gear. They met at Red River this time, and as they gathered together, this, was, this is what James McGreedy wrote about Red River now in 1800. He said, this was the greatest time that we've ever seen before. On Monday, multitudes were struck down under an awful conviction. Cries of the distressed filled the whole house. There you might seen profane swearers, Sabbath breakers. They were pricked to the heart, crying out, what shall we do to be saved? This is something only God can do. He said, these frolickers and dancers now were crying for mercy. There you might see even little children, 10, 11, 12 years of age, praying and crying for redemption in the blood of Jesus in agonies and distress. During the sacrament, let me tell you, taking Holy Communion is an awesome thing. And I know that you know that and you feel that here. I know that you do. And let me just stop for a moment and do a little rabbit trail. There was a guy that came one time years ago because we take communion weekly. And he told me he had never been around taking the Lord's Supper frequently. But when he came here, he said him and his wife were sitting there. And he says, we went to take communion. He said all of a sudden he felt 
the presence of God come on him. And he said it was like a holy fear of God. He said it was an awesome thing. And not only that, but Benny Baker told me that. He said, brother, he said, every time I come to your church, when I'm there, when you guys are taking communion, he said, I feel like the holiness of God. It's like a fear of the Lord. And let me tell you, that's what they felt here. He said, during the sacrament, which is communion, and until Tuesday following, 10 persons were believed to be uh, brought to Jesus Christ. And this was just the beginning. As the Red River revival continued, it was recorded this. At the sound of a hymn that was being sung, there was this woman that cried out, probably receiving some knowledge of saving grace, and there was another preacher there named John McGee. And McGee descended to congratulate these women, and as he did, the glory of God seemed to break out over the whole people, and some fell to the ground. This was the first time that this happened. This is important. Because the revival, you remember how the Bible talks about how it's ankle deep, then what, knee deep, waist deep? All right, now we're moving into deeper waters here, okay? He said the glory broke forth, and all of a sudden, people just fell to the ground. Others were screaming for mercy. Some prayed, others praising God at the top of their lungs. His brother, William McGee, who was sitting nearby, rose to go to the pulpit, but he fell on the floor under the power. So much for preaching that night. And then um, John McGee goes on to say this. He said, I turned to him, and he said, I felt the power of God so heavily on me that he said, I nearly crumbled behind my brother. He said, I turned to go back and was near falling to the ground. The power of God was so strong on me. He said, I turned again, and losing sight of any fear of man, in other words, I quit caring what anybody thought, he basically said, I took off through the meeting place, and I went through the house shouting and exhorting with all possible ecstasy and energy, and all of a sudden, the floor soon was covered with people under the power of God. Wow. The ministers that were there, including McGreedy, looked at all these people under the power as though it looked like they were dead, <laughs> okay? And they began to get concerned. They said, well, what's going on? We've never had this before. Do we need to see if they're okay? And John McGee assured the other preachers, he said, I really believe that this is the Lord and that we just need to leave it alone. How many knows that we need that type of wisdom? Amen. When God's moving, quit trying to figure everything out and control everything. Just let God move. So now that this river had deepened to the degree that more people were coming and now people are just being swept down under the power of God, McGreedy decided to have another communion the following month at Gasper River, but it broke forth at Red River. Many historians and those that have even have a cursory knowledge about revival history have heard of the Red River Revival, okay? So McGreedy decided, let's take this over to Gasper River. Now, word spread like wildfire at what broke forth at Red River. So the multitudes began to come even from 100 miles away. Think about this is the days of horseback and wagons. 100 miles was a long distance. This move of God continued with many being struck to the ground with shrieks and loud shouts. Historians agree that this was the birth 
of camp meetings in America. The Holy Spirit moved with great force that McGreedy and others that were there said this. They said that whether it was believers, universalists, deists, and even atheists, didn't matter. They were struck to the ground under the power of God. Revival fire was now spreading throughout Logan County, throughout Kentucky, and even into Tennessee. Communion services were held almost every weekend for the rest of the summer because of how powerfully God was moving. So they said, well, let's not shut this thing down. Let's increase the frequency of these meetings because God's moving, and the people were coming. John McGee said, many thousands of people began to attend these meetings. Now, let's just stop for a moment. It started with James McGreedy praying on Saturday nights for revival and having a few others agree with him. And it ended up growing now that there was a mighty river flowing. He said, many thousands attended, and the mighty power and mercy of God manifested. Now, it was at these meetings that had been going on now that a man named Barton Stone, he was the pastor at Cambridge. Barton Stone had heard about the move of God that was happening through James McGreedy. Now, Barton Stone was a very sincere man. He was also Presbyterian like McGreedy. He, was, he had an education, and he, he loved the unity of the brethren. Just as James McGreedy was kind of a fiery revival preacher, in the same way, Barton Stone had such a heart to see the walls between denominations come down. Why don't we just all come together and see God move? That was a big thing with Barton Stone. He knew James McGreedy from David Caldwell's Academy where James was educated, and James would go back there to preach. Now listen to Barton Stone here. He said, Barton Stone said, when James McGreedy would preach there, and he was there listening to him, this is how he described him. He says, such earnestness and such zeal, such powerful persuasion, enforced by the joys of heaven and the miseries of hell. I had never witnessed before. My mind was chained to him and followed him closely through the rounds of heaven, earth, and hell with feelings indescribable. His concluding remarks were always addressed to the sinner to flee the coming wrath without delay. See, James McGreedy always wanted to warn sinners. He was a revivalist. And Barton Stone said, Never before had I comparatively felt the force of truth. Such was my excitement that if I had been standing, I probably would have sunk to the floor under the impression. So Barton Stone, when he heard that James McGreedy was seeing these moves of God out there in Gasper River, Muddy River, Red River, he said, I need to go out there and see what's going on because I know he knew James's ministry and he knew him to be a mighty man of God. So Barton Stone takes a few with him and he goes out there to one of James's communion uh, services. He decided to attend in the spring of 1801. So this was right before Cambridge. Cambridge took place in August 1801, okay? The scene that greeted him was revolutionary. How many would love to see this again in our day right now? Think about this river of life. That, that God began to come down in such a way that people are being drawn in. I mean, so Barton gets there. 
And he said the scene that greeted him was just revolutionary. He said, by this time, the crowds had grown too large to have a service with any just one group of people. So various areas of ministry were going on concurrently in separate locations. Stone describes what he saw. He said, there on the edge of this prairie in Logan County, Kentucky, the multitudes came together and continued a number of days and nights and camped on the ground, during which time worship, worship was carried on in some part of the encampment. The scene to me was new and passing strange. It baffled description. Many, very many, fell to the ground as men slain in battle. And this continued for hours together in an apparently breathless and motionless state, sometimes for a few moments reviving and exhibiting some symptoms of life, like a deep groan or a piercing shriek or some prayer for mercy in a most fervently uttered way. After lying thus for hours, they would obtain deliverance from this. He said they seemed gloomy and like they were crying out for mercy, but he said that would release from them. And then he said that gloomy cloud which had covered their faces seemed gradually and visibly to disappear, and hope and smiles brightened into joy. They would rise shouting deliverance and then would address the surrounding multitude in a language truly eloquent and impressive. With astonishment did I hear men, women, and children declaring the wonderful works of God and the glorious mysteries of the gospel. Their appeals were solemn. They were heart-penetrating. They were bold, and they were free. Under such state from which these speakers had been delivered, two or three of my particular acquaintances from a distance were struck down. Some of the people that came with him fell on the ground, is what he's saying. And he said, I sat patiently by one of them who I knew to be a careless sinner. <laughs> so Barton brings with him some people. One of them he knew was lost, and he sees him get struck to the ground. So Barton goes over to him and sits by him and wants to watch what's happening. Barton was an extremely, I read about him. I don't have time to get into it, but he was an extremely intelligent individual, very humble, but he was very intelligent. And he wanted to study this. He had never seen this before. And he wanted to really watch what was going on. And from beginning to end, he was willing to sit there for hours and take notes and study this thing because he found this to be an awesome thing that God was doing. So he said, I sat patiently by them whom I knew to be a careless sinner for hours and observed with critical attention everything that passed from beginning to end. And I noticed the momentary reviving as from death the humble confession of sins, the fervent prayer, and the ultimate deliverance to the praise of God, the affectionate exhortation to the companion and to the people around to repent and come to Jesus. I was astonished. He saw this guy come with him who didn't know the Lord get struck to the ground, watched him for hours as he seemed gloomy. He seemed in this lifeless state, but he would come to to, to groan and ask forgiveness for his sins. Gradually over time, he began to feel uh, happy and joyful, and he gets up, and now he's preaching to people around him. This was a common thing that was going on here in these revivals. And he said, I was astonished at the knowledge of the gospel truth that was displayed at the address. Where did this guy get this wisdom now that he's saying? The effect was, listen to this. It didn't just stop there. The effect was that several sunk down in the same appearance as death. In other words, 
his heathen friend got saved, stood up, began to preach the gospel, and other people had heard him fell on the ground and started having the same experience. He said, after attending to many such cases, he lingered. Barton Stone was going around and watching this in people's lives. He said, I attended to many such cases, and it was my conviction that this was a good work, the work of God. Nor has my mind wavered since on the subject. He stated the devil would never cause people to truly get saved, repent of their sins, and then get up and witness to others that are giving their lives to Jesus. He said the devil would never do that. He said this was a work of God. When Stone returned to his congregation, this is, I love this. I saw this in the 90s. I've, I've seen this. I've experienced this myself personally. When you go to powerful revivals, it can follow you home. I've experienced it myself. And Barton Stone was in that revival. And upon returning back home to Cane Ridge, to his Presbyterian church, Stone began to share what he had seen with his parishioners. They were struck to the heart. The congregation was so deeply affected, he said that many of them returned home weeping as they went. He also pastored at Concord. He went there to minister. But as he was returning back to Cane Ridge, his parishioners were there. And there was a man named Nathaniel Rogers that saw Stone returning and he had experienced some kind of an awakening, some kind of a salvation experience where uh, it, what they called it was an assurance of his salvation. And he was so excited. He saw Barton Stone returning and he ran out there shouting praises to God to embrace him. And when the other people in the meeting house heard this, they all went outside. Listen to this. It says, um, the crowd that was at the meeting house were waiting Stone's return, left the church, hurried to the scene. Less than 20 minutes, the scores of people at Cambridge had all fallen to the ground under the power of God. Some tried to flee the scene, but while they were running, collapsed under the power. Some of them started to flee, but just turned around and came back, I guess realizing that they couldn't leave for some reason. He said that there was even a deist man that was there from the neighborhood Stone said, he stepped up to me and said, because all these people are on the ground, experiencing what he just saw right back at Red River. And this Diaz says, Mr. Stone, sir, I always thought that you were an honest man, but now I'm convinced you're deceiving these people. And uh, Barton Stone said, I viewed the man with such pity, and I, I mildly spoke. I was about to explain things to him when all of a sudden he fell to the ground as a dead man. And he said he rose no more until he accepted Christ. This spontaneous outbreak of the Holy Spirit lasted on that spot in open air till late that night, and many found peace with the Lord. Revival followed him home, and he was experiencing it now in his church. So Barton Stone began to feel, this was spring of 1801, he began to feel we need to do this here, okay? They're out there in Logan County. We're over here close to Lexington area. We need to do this here so that the people can come from around here. 
And so Barton Stone scheduled a communion service, and he knew the crowds would probably be large. And so he knew his meeting house could only, I mean, packing them in like sardines could only hold about 500 at the most. He said he arranged areas to be cleared. So they went out there felling trees and clearing out area areas, and they put up a big tent, and he wanted to make room for the crowds. He was expecting something similar to Red River where thousands came. He was not ready for the actual crowd that came. And so thousands began arriving. This was the summer. This was August of 1801. Thousands began arriving. Stone stated that the roads were literally crowded with wagons, carriages, horsemen, footmen. They were all moving to this solemn camp where God's presence was. The crowds became so large that our military came to keep an eye on it just to make sure everything was okay. That's how large the crowd was. Our military came. And our military stated that there was somewhere between twenty to 30,000 people that showed up that week. And the meetings went nonstop for seven days and nights. They would have continued on, but supplies ran out for such a great crowd. They ran out of uh, feed for the horses. They ran out of food for the people. I mean, they just ran out of supplies, and so people had to go back home. But I'm just going to read a little bit about Cane Ridge. This seemed to be kind of the climax of the camp meetings. 20, 30,000 people came. The Holy Spirit fell like he did at Red River, but even in a greater measure. And the outworking of that revival continued for many years, which I'll talk about. But here at Cambridge, during this week of August of 1801, it says, I'm just going to read some different stories, okay? Two young ladies' sisters were standing together watching the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and the preaching at the same time. Instantly, they fell both to the ground with a shriek of distress and lay for more than an hour apparently in a lifeless state. Their mother, a pious Baptist, was in great distress, fearing would they not revive? At length, they began to exhibit symptoms of life by crying fervently for mercy and, and relapse into this same death-like state with an awful gloom on their countenance. After a while, the gloom on the face, though, was replaced with a heavenly smile. And she cried out, one of them got up, cried out, Precious Jesus, and rose up and spoke of the love of God, the preciousness of Jesus, and the glory of the gospel to the surrounding crowd in a language almost superhuman and sincerely exhorted all to repentance. In a little while after that, her sister also awakened, and from that time on, they became remarkably, remarkably pious members of the church. God revolutionized their life. The effects of this greater move of God was felt throughout the country like fire on dry stubble, driven by a strong wind. During this week at Cane Ridge, powerful manifestations of the Holy Spirit exploded. I'm going to read to you here in a moment, Robert Finley, and then we're going to kind of close this out, but I'll read to you what he wrote. But powerful manifestations. When the Holy Spirit comes with great intensity, there is going to be manifestations. I mean, you can't lick your finger and stick it in an electric socket and just stand there calmly. Something is going to happen. And the Holy Spirit falling like this, the people, it said that some of the people's whole body was just jerking. And this resulted in, in maybe a, oh, like a sound coming out of their mouth. And they called, they, some of the critics said, well, that's like barking or something. It really wasn't. Their whole body was jerking. 
others a deep bowing. Some of the witnesses said it was the weirdest thing. You would see somebody flat-footed, and their, their head would go all the way back like this and all the way forward, and the women's hair would come out of a bun. It became like a whip, and they said there was no way you could do that. Their body was going back and forth, back and forth like this, and they're just sitting there looking at this in amazement. Others said that there was extreme shaking to the degree that you'd look at somebody's face and their head would be going back and forth, side to side, so fast that it would blur their countenance. <laughs> Dancing in the spirit, deep laughing in the spirit. Some were laughing so hysterically, belly laughing. Others were crying, shouting, beautiful singing. The most, one of the most common manifestations was that many would fall to the ground as if slain in battle and continue there for hours in an apparently breathless, emotionless state, sometimes a few moments reviving and exhibiting some type of symptom of life like a groan or a shriek, but usually prayers for mercy. When this came, you know what was happening here? When the Holy Spirit came like that, there was an element here of the fear of God the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and holiness, the beauty of holiness. This came in in such a way that it caused people sometimes to feel that they needed to just flee out of that because that fear of God was on them. But many of them would collapse while they were running. They couldn't get away. This was God's mercy. When God comes down like that, it is his awesome mercy to convict people of their sins and the fear of God to come that people will truly repent and get saved. So I'm going to read something here in a moment. So looking back at this, around 1798-99, remember it started with McGreedy praying on Saturdays. And then you hear about 10 people got saved, a cloud the size of a man's hand. But he was persistent. Then they started gathering together and they started seeing more people get saved and more people come and pretty soon thousands were coming to the Red River Revival. Now it reached its crescendo at the week-long revival at Cane Ridge. And this is what Robert Finley wrote. Now I'm going to start closing this out, but this, the last couple things I'm going to share are extremely important. So I want you to really give me your best ear. How many love reading about just hearing these stories? I mean, it stirs something in me. So Robert Finley was the son of a powerful circuit writer, James Finley, who helped build the Cane Ridge Meeting House. So what the circuit writers were, were those that were Methodist. They got saved under Wesley's ministry. They became Methodist. And there were some of them that felt a call into ministry. And what they would do is that they would have to... The Wesley and them told him, said, make sure you got a really good horse, okay? Because they had to ride great distances. And what they did was they went out by faith, mind you, but they would go from homestead to homestead, horseback, and they would witness to the family there. And as the family got saved, they may stay there with them for a time. And, and of course, the family would give them lodging and feed them and all that. And once they felt they were done, they would go to the next homestead. But it, they were called circuit riders. So you weren't just seeing the revivals like this in a location. There were people that were taking it out to the homesteads that were out there, okay? 
And so James Finley was one of these circuit riders. But Robert, his son, was full of pride and was not right with God at all. And Robert looked at the Cane Ridge revival, and he had heard about what was going on in these revivals like Red River, now Cane Ridge. And this was his arrogant response. He says, if I fall to the ground, it's going to be by physical power. In other words, somebody's going to push me down. And it's not going to be by singing or praying. He said, as I prided myself upon my manhood and courage that I had no fear of being overcome by any nervous excitement or being frightened into religion. So he goes to Cane Ridge in all of his pride and arrogance. And this is his story. He wrote about it. He said the noise was like the roar of Niagara. Mind you, that there was no speakers there. You know, I'm talking about sound system speakers. That's what I'm talking about. There was no worship band. What was this roar of Niagara was only the sounds of the Holy Spirit moving upon tens of thousands of people. He said it was like a roar. He said the vast sea of human beings, as far as my eye could see, he said, seemed to be agitated as if by storm. He said, I counted seven ministers, all preaching at one time. Some of them over there on stumps. Others were on the back of wagons. One man, he said, was on a tree that had fallen and was standing on the tree. Some of these preachers were Baptist, others Presbyterian, others Methodist, mind you. But there was tens of thousands of people, so there'd be preacher way over there and then way over there and another one over here. He said, I counted just from what I could see, seven of them. Some of the people I saw were singing and others were praying. Some were crying out for mercy in the most piteous accents, while others shouting most vociferously, while witnessing these scenes, a peculiar strange sensation such as I'd never felt came over me. My heart began to beat tumultuously. My knees began to tremble. My lips quivered. I felt as though I was going to fall to the ground. A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of minds there collected. I stepped up onto a log where I could have a better view of this surging sea of humanity as far as I, my eyes could see. He said, I stood up on this log, and the scene that then presented it to my, myself was indescribable. At one time, I saw at least 500 people swept to the ground in a moment as if a battery of a 1,000 guns had been opened upon them and then immediately followed by shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. Afterwards, Robert Finley left. And he went into the woods. And he just kind of get away from it. And he strove to rally up his manhood and courage. He tried to rationalize the event. I mean, all that he had seen and felt, he's trying to rationalize it now. Well, maybe it's my imagination. But his pride was wounded. So he went down to the bar in Lexington to drown it all in brandy. But it had no effect. He said the more he drank, the worse it got. He avoided seeing anybody that he knew personally because he didn't want them to think something was wrong with him. All of his sins were coming up before him with an awful conviction. 
I think his daddy had been praying for him. He tried to sleep that night in the barn, hoping to awake different, but it was a dreadful night. His sins were just coming before him. Later on, finding a friend who came to him and said, hey, let's leave. So along the journey, though, as they were together, the fountains that were pent up within him broke forth, and he told his friend, Captain, if you and I don't stop our wickedness, the devil's going to get us both, and he began to weep bitterly. He lodged that night, spending the entire night weeping in deep repentance before the Lord. Robert went on to become a lifelong minister of some importance in the Methodist church. Isn't that awesome? The Holy Spirit followed that man from Cambridge to the bar, to the barn, along the journey, but he ended up becoming a powerful man of God. The young American frontier was set ablaze. The Presbyterians, the Methodists quickly caught the fire, and then the flame broke out among the Baptists in Carroll County on the Ohio River. Great personalities emerged out of this. Peter Cartwright got saved in these meetings, and Peter Cartwright became a mighty man of God. Later on, Charles Finney got saved. Also, the Methodist circuit riders, many of them got saved in these revivals and began to go out evangelize. Now, I think that this was the same revival, if you will, that had happened 50 years before. I think it was the same revival. It just was being rekindled all up again. It was like throwing wood back on the fire and stirring it back up again. It's just my opinion. Let me, let me give you an example. So go back 50 years now to the days of Wesley, Whitfield, and Edwards, the first awakening. Jonathan Edwards said this. Remember, he pastored there in, in uh, Massachusetts. He said, the Holy Spirit's activity in the great awakening was like this. When God did as it were to suddenly open their eyes and let into their minds a sense of his greatness, of his grace, the fullness of Christ, his readiness to save, their joyful surprise caused their hearts as it were to leap and they had been ready to break forth into laughter. Tears also issuing like a flood, weeping uncontrollably, loud weeping. It was very frequent to see a house full of outcries, faintings as they fell on the ground, convulsions as they shook under the power, and such both of these things with either distress or admiration and joy, many remaining on the floor under the power for even a 24-hour period motionless. And their senses locked up in, this, in the meantime under some strong imagination as though they went to heaven and had visions of glorious and delightful things. So I, look at the similarities. This could have read that this happened at Cambridge. I believe it was the same move of God. What they needed was people that would be desperate like James McGreedy that would pray and pray and pray and press in. And whenever you started seeing the cloud the size of a man's hand, that you didn't give up or anything, you kept going for it until it grew into a mighty outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Now, let me tell you, this did not stop in 1801. As people left Cane Ridge and they left Red River and Muddy River, they went back and they began to have camp meetings where they came from, and the Holy Spirit began to fall there. They said the recorded history, I don't have time to, to go into a big, long thing, but that this continued on for decades of people seeing moves of God. Did you know, and I believe you told me that your grandmother told you this, if I remember right, 
that the Methodist used to be Pentecostal when she was young. Yeah, it was you told me. And I heard that too from other sources. You know what? Did you know the outworking of the Cambridge Revival? I was reading this. They said this was the second great awakening. They also said it was another Pentecost. So I said, well, where are they getting it? And here's what I read. There were accounts of people saying that whenever the Holy Spirit would come in their meetings and people fall out under the power, that some of them spoke in an unknown tongue. So Pentecost was coming. And, and this is what happened. The same as every other revival, as the Holy Spirit continued to move, and this was going out to places, there was a lot of denominational-type preachers and churches that were not very receptive to the move of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. They were not very receptive to the move of the Holy Spirit. And so they began to try to shut down the move of God and God moved somewhere else. But the Methodists were wide open to the move of the Holy Spirit and they basically became spirit-filled in their group. Isn't that awesome? So this didn't, this didn't stop. This fire spread, but just like every other revival, a lot of the denominational churches of that time, don't let me lose you, a lot of the denominational churches of that time did not want the move of God. But the new converts wanted it, and a lot of the, the hungry seekers wanted it, and they were places that continued to see great outpourings of the Holy Spirit. All right. We need that again in our day. The similarity here for me, and I'm going to close now with some scriptures, but the similarity to me was this. We saw, just like the Moravians prayed, remember this? I've told you all about the Moravians really being powerful prayer warriors. As the Moravians prayed, and God began to pour out his spirit, and God began to move with great power, there came this great awakening, and many were saved in the days of Wesley. But then it began to wane, and some people said that America was very backslid, not in a good place. And it was in that condition now that people began to cry out and revival rekindled. I see personally a similarity. We've had some places, in my opinion, this is just the way I see it. I think that just like the Moravians of old, we've had the South Koreans that have been really a people of prayer. I mean, I've heard of them praying out there in Prayer Mountain in South Korea. I'm talking thousands and thousands, multiply tens of thousands of prayer warriors, and they've been praying Prayer Mountain night and day, crying out to God, and I believe the revivals that broke forth in the late 80s through the 90s up until probably 2005 was a wave of great revival, like the first great awakening, so to speak, that we experienced. But things have waned. We're in a similar situation. Things have waned, and the enemy has come in, and he's tried to, to bring great sweeping change in a very negative way. But I believe that just like in this day, if there can be some James McGreedy's, if there could be some Barton Stones, and there could be some people that will cry out to God and begin to seek him and press in, that God once again can stir back up the move of his spirit in a much greater measure and see this end-time darkness roll back as a great harvest is swept in. But it's not going to be by human effort. It's not going to be by our ingenuity. It will be by the power of the Spirit. And I'll never forget Duncan Campbell. Go on YouTube and look up Duncan Campbell 
talking about the Hebridean revival, 1949, 50, 51. He said this, and man, you could feel it when he talked about it. He said, it was nothing that any evangelistic effort, our best efforts could do. He said, God stepped down. That's it. He said, a power broke loose in that barn in Barvis when they prayed there that ended up shaking the whole community and before it was done, affected the whole Isle of Hebrides. We need that again. We need it now. We need it desperately. So this is how I want to close this out. Is the depth of what must happen. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul said this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, that your spirit, soul, and body be complete without blame at the coming of the Lord. But he said your spirit, soul, and your body. <clears throat> then James 3.15, he was talking about a wisdom, he said, that's not from above. But look at this, earthly, soulish, and even demonic. Earthly, soulish, and it can become demonic. Think about Think about this. Think in these terms for a moment. Earthly, soulish. I'll tell you what it's not. James, what it's not, it's not Holy Spirit affecting your spirit. See, what was happening at Cambridge, let me say it this way. I think I can present it correctly. Some of what's been going on out there for some time now, the last couple decades, since revival has waned, it's strictly a appealing to people's flesh. What you won't see and hear is sacrifice. And what I mean by that is being willing to spend time sacrificially that you're going to go do things that your flesh doesn't want to do. You're going to go to prayer meetings. You're going to fast. You're going to not do things you could have done to sacrifice your time to go serve, and you're going to get out there and, and do things for the kingdom of God. What in some places out there it's become is just give people what they want, when they want it, how they want it, and it's just appealing to the human flesh. And I'll tell you what it's done. It's produced about that deep, the most shallow form of Christianity you could imagine that is totally carnal. People that have no desire whatsoever to ever sacrifice anything for the kingdom. It's some kind of a so-called Christianity on their terms. It's like what David Hogan used to say, Burger King Christianity, give me what I want, when I want it, how I want it. So some places are just appealing to the flesh. And it's no different than what the world does. It's a, it's a business. It's you run it this way, you advertise, you, it's just the flesh, okay? Now, there's others that may go deeper than the flesh, but it's still only soul. And what do I mean by that? Well, your soul is your mind and emotions and all that. So it appeals to the intellect of people. Their minds are stimulated, and it appeals to their emotions, where they may weep or laugh or whatever, but it's only that deep. We're not talking about penetrating to the spirit here. I remember one time I went to see this Christian movie at the theater that had come out. It was really good, 
But I remember seeing some people just really weeping. And that's great. It was a good movie, good message. And I'm glad that they cried and all that. Great. I'm happy for them. But that is not a Holy Spirit encounter in your spirit. That's just emotional. That's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with penetrating down and really dealing with people's inner spirit here. We're dealing with just intellectual. We're dealing with emotions. And human emotions can be all over the place. Somebody can be really happy, and then somebody can be in a depression a week later. Somebody can be really so-called committed, and then in a month later, they're no longer committed. That's when it's just soulish. But what was happening at Cambridge, and this is how y'all need to pray, what was happening at Cambridge, and I saw happen myself, I experienced it, I was there. I saw it in the 90s revivals. What was happening was deeper than the flesh for sure, and it was far deeper than the soul. God was penetrating down to the deep in people. And here's, here's what the Bible says in Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. Everybody say a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you will walk in my statutes and are careful to follow my ordinances. Let me tell you, that's something only God can do. And I remember in the early days at Brownsville, I went there as much as I could and other revivals. I was, uh, I was younger at the time, single, travel out, went as much as I could. And I remember, though, then those early days when nobody was really there, the crowds weren't there, they, there was these videos that came out of it. And I remember Steve was telling people, you need to go. He said, I'm going to leave unless you go out and start witnessing to people and bringing people here to get saved. So they started witnessing. I remember this guy, because they were, they were coming to the revival meetings like Barton Stone. They were getting prayer, and they were going home, and revival was going home with them. And he, I don't remember his profession. He was either a, an electrician, a plumber, something like that. But I remember him. I can see his face. And he was there, and he was saying he had brought this lady and this lady had gotten saved, and she was giving her testimony. And the story went like this. The man was at the revival, and he goes home. The next day, he had a call to go to this lady's house. And he's there, and he's trying to talk to her about her issues, plumbing, electrical, whatever it was. And all of a sudden, the hair starts standing up on the back of his neck, and he starts tearing up, and his lip starts quivering, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. This lady felt it. And so she was lost. He begins to talk to her. He said, I'm sorry, I'm trying to talk, but he couldn't compose himself. He felt like crying. He said, I just, I've been at these revival meetings. And I, he said, I kind of felt embarrassed because here I'm supposed to be professional and I'm acting like this. But he said the lady was interested. Long and short of it, she gave her life to Jesus. Not only that, her son got saved. She comes that night. They had given her a Bible. And I remember her standing there. You remember at Cane Ridge how the people would get saved and stand up and then the things that they would say. This lady, could she basically preached the sermon that night in the most humble way. But she opened her Bible and she said, this was what God showed me. And she read Ezekiel 36, 26 and said, God took out my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. 
And when she was saying it, you could just feel it in her son. She said, my son got so touched. She said, he works a very difficult job. He has to drive an hour one way. They work hard. They dig ditches among other, work all, other types of work all day. He gets home, and then he's been coming every night to this revival because he's so hungry for God. When, that's, when you hear me say things like, I've seen true hunger, I have. I've seen people go across country or from other countries to go to revivals. I've seen people spend money they didn't have to go. I've seen people line up and, and stand in line all day in the rain or the blistering heat to be in the revivals. I was there, I saw it. And now, look at where we're at. God can do it again. But the Holy Spirit, we must pray and believe God for the Holy Spirit to break forth and begin to draw people. But it's not going to be about catering to people's little flesh. That's how you're going to get a bunch of little wimps and sissies and crybabies right there. A bunch of selfish little babies that just want it their way. That's not real Christianity. And then if you just tickle people's soul, as soon as times get tough, they're going to bail. But whenever God gives somebody a new heart, puts a new spirit in them, they will obey his statutes and walk in his ways. They're different. Their heart's different. So this deep work will cause, though, river of life, I want you to think about this. This deep work that God does will cause you to not be understood by some. Down through the years, I have felt that sometimes people don't really understand because God did such a deep work in me that there's things that the Holy Spirit just doesn't, I don't even want to be around it anyway, but there's things I don't watch, I don't listen to, places I don't go, things I don't participate in. That other people that profess to be Christians, you know, say they can't. I just, God put a new heart in me, a new spirit. All I can say is, is that I'm different. You're not going to be understood by some people. You sincerely won't be able to be content. Now listen, river of life, hear me, because this, this is real what I'm saying. You won't actually be able to be content with church as usual anymore. You're kind of ruined for life in a good way, but you'll sit through these nominal boring services and you'll sit there being respectful because you love everybody, but you're bored because you want to be in God's presence and he ain't there. Also, your convictions will change. This is the type of deep work where God circumcises, the scriptures you read about, this is where God circumcises the heart. This is where the law is written upon your heart. This is where the fire is born in you in a zeal. I believe that was imparted to me probably many different times, many different places, but I remember the initial time for me was at Brownsville, got prayer in the floor, and I felt baptized with fire, but I felt a fire in me. And God began to do that deep, penetrating work, and he began to sanctify me. It takes time, and we need to be patient with people, and I, I hope that it's okay that I share some things with, you know, Steve Hill has gone home to be with the Lord, but he talked to me real serious about some things. He told me when you work with young people, he said, don't be too hard on them. This is what he told me. He said, they're just young people. They're going to mess up sometimes. They're going to do some things they shouldn't do. He said, don't be too hard on them. That's important. Because these religious people are mean. 
and it turns baby Christians off, and it turns off young people. When they come into church, and you got all these snooty people that are full of religion, and they're mean, grumpy. They, you know, what is that about? I saw it. I was around it. I could tell stories. I'm just going to be nice. But young people don't like it. Listen, whenever we're seeing all these young people come in and we're seeing all these heathen come in, be patient with them because they, God will catch the fish first. Then he'll clean the fish. Let God clean them. It can take some time. Be patient with people. But God will give people a new heart. But that's what I want, River of Life. That's what I want you to begin to pray that God will move in such a way, kind of like he did at Cambridge, but in such a way that people are given a new heart, a heart for God. See, when the Holy Spirit isn't moving, that's, people substitute all this. They, you've got to get the best programs and the best facility and all these different things. You've got to have all this decor and all this stuff to kind of substitute the lack of the move of God to get people to come. But when God really comes down, people will come and people will be drawn into salvation. It's not by our might or power. It's by the Spirit of God these things will happen. Let's go ahead and shut down recordings as I pray. But Lord, I thank you. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Release a mighty move of your Spirit in Jesus' name.